We're going to start tonight our series in apologetics, and uh, we'll go through that Wednesday nights and just try to figure out exactly how the Lord can use this and us reaching out to people. We're going to break down what apologetics is. Uh, In a nutshell, it's going to prepare us to be able to talk to person from any major world belief system, atheist, agnostics, skeptics, cynics, um, people who don't even think that there's any truth at all. When you come when you come into confrontation with those people, a lot of times we as Christians don't exactly know what to say, but we're going to go through this Wednesday night after Wednesday night and prepare ourselves. But before we actually get into apologetics, this is uh, we're going to look at a few slides, and this is from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. They showed this several years ago in regards to church planning, and it just gives us uh, an idea of the North American culture in which we live. I think a lot of times, even in the South, we can forget how much lostness there actually is. So here's just a few statistics here um, that we'll look at. We know that God's mission is to form one people from all peoples for his glory and worship. Amen? Right? From every people group, every tribe, kindred, nation, tongue. And the lostness in North America is what we're going to look at before we get into apologetics. Uh, This is a few years old, but the population of North America is well over uh, 330 million. So the question is, what percentage are lost? Here is some of the um, numbers we see there. Evangelical Protestant, mainline Protestant, Catholic, other. And notice which uh, group out of this bar graph is the most. This is from 2000. Unclaimed. North America. So we've got us in the 51st state. Okay, And in the United States, 50% were not members of any church. Now before we go further, this can be a little bit shocking to us if we've been in church for a while. Because if you've ever been in church, often most of your friends become who? Church people. Because we're there, you know, once, twice, sometimes even three times a week. So birds of a feather, feather flock together. And if that's who we're around, it may seem to us that the whole world believes somewhat like ourselves. But once we get out of that, it's vastly different. So that 50% would be 166 um, million. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry. It's the end of it. and, uh, so 166 million plus. How about that? All right. And so the SBC reported, so the Baptist Convention, in 2005. So here's the thing. It, it's not gotten any better. These are seven-year-old stats. 371,850 baptisms. Amen? Woohoo! But compared to, I know I suckered y'all on that one. You're supposed to say amen when the pastor does. But um, there's uh, just a little um, pie chart on 371,850 compared to the one over 166 million. It's great to have um, a little under half a million people baptized, but when you compare that to how many people are not saved, what comes to mind? Just, just as a visual representation of what we have up here. Very poor proportion. Lost the message. That's just who didn't claim religious affiliation. Correct. We're not even talking about lost church members. Or people who say, I'm a Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, they don't even go, you know, like they don't even, it's not even an issue in their life. So, kind of like a drop in the bucket. Uh, If only 50% are lost, then Southern Baptist Convention's 
Southern Baptist Convention, baptisms for 2005 represent 0.22%. Another view is that Bobby Welts, the SBC president for 2006, challenged Southern Baptist to baptize 1 million people during that year. What if Southern Baptist baptized 3 million? There's the pie chart for that. See, even when it gets crazy, like we say God is blowing off the hinges at this church compared to the total lostness, we're not talking about India, right? This is, this is just North America. It looks very, very small. So what about all evangelical churches in North America, not just those fundamentalist Southern Baptists? Approximately 400,000, okay? In a year, everybody else claiming to be Christian. That's how many salvations, baptisms were added. Assume each church baptizes the same average as Southern Baptist churches, which is 7.6 per church. That would be 3,040,000. We would almost keep pace with the population growth, but still not reduce lostness. Even if we saw an exponential increase and the amount of people being saved, not just in Southern Baptist churches, but in all, we would just keep pace with population growth. We wouldn't actually make a dent in the lostness. In North America, people are dying every day. 303 people die every hour. 7,272 people die every day. And 2,656,098 people die every year, U.S. and Canada combined on that. So over 1,500 will die during the five hours we are in, and this is not for us, this is the presentation was given in Southern, in that five-hour period, 1,500 people will die, and at least 750 of those are lost without Christ. So the population of North America, we, have, we know, is increasing. One birth every eight seconds, one death every 13 seconds, one international migrant Every 31 seconds, net gain of one person every 11 seconds. The population of North America will increase by 3,164,526. And to equal the population growth, that means there would need to be 1,687 members per church. Another church planning view would mean that if the population increases by that 3,164,526 people, we would need 12,658 new churches with 250 members per church. Notice, to simply equal the population growth. Is this, is this pretty heavy stuff, or is this pretty heavy stuff? This was given by Southern to say... Not only do Southern Baptists want to revitalize churches, churches that are plateaued and declining, but even if we revitalized every dead Southern Baptist church in the United States, guess what it would never do? would not make a dent in the lostness. So not only do we want to try to help establish churches, but we also want to plant new churches. So we should all give Franklin Heights two high fives, a lot of prayer for doing what they're doing near the lake with the church plant. I will never understand Christians who will... Who will um, criticize other Christians for planting churches in areas that have lost people. You know, My thing is, okay, so you don't think that's a good idea? Well, what are you doing? That's what I thought. Nothing. Do us all a favor and shut it. All right? So is that, is that unpastoral? Is that unpastoral? Okay? So uh, the population of North America, we know it will increase by over the three, uh, 
3 million. So what we would need is 31,650 or 45 new churches with 100 members per church, as opposed to the 12,658 new churches with 250 members. So, before we jump into apologetics, I wanted to share that with you all, just to let us know, even here in Franklin County, even in the South, there is a huge, vast spiritual darkness. And as Trish mentioned, what we looked at tonight was simply the people that don't even claim to follow Christ. Right? We're not talking about all the people who go to church every Sunday, but they've never shared the gospel. They've never even considered giving to, to missions. None of that. So with all of that being said, um, we are somewhat still, in a certain sense, compared to maybe Richmond or Atlanta or even Roanoke, for that, for that matter, somewhat culturally isolated. In fact, we haven't had... Um, I guess we could say, an, a massive influx of people here in Rocky Mount from, let's say, the Middle East, from India. There's a few, but it's still somewhat traditionally American here. But in most places in the U.S., if it hasn't happened in your town yet, it's coming to a town near you and will happen. So what we have here, number one, is traditional America has become less and less Christian And then there are people moving into the U.S. from all parts of the world, whether that be Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. Um, Some of my friends at one of the Chinese restaurants, I've worked out with their son, the local Y, and uh, they're from China. And people from China say, well, we don't have a religion because it's illegal to have a religion in China unless you're just a traditional Taoist. So what we have is your good old boys in America Most of them, if they go to church, there's no real Christ relationship. And then their friends and family don't have any relationship with Christ. And then the people who come don't even believe in Christ. So then that causes us to say, what are we going to do in the midst of this culture to prepare ourselves? We can do one of two things. Number one, we can contract and say, well, let's surround ourselves by people like us and get into, y'all know what a holy huddle is? (coughs) Heard that phrase before? Let me just get me and my Christ-loving friends around and let's just kind of tell each other how great we are and have mutual fellowship and stick our heads proverbially in the sand. Or we can prepare ourselves individually to speak Christ to people from belief systems that our parents and grandparents never had to deal with, right? You can go back several decades and, I mean, any discussion about Jesus Christ, it went back down to... You know, if you're Baptist, you don't drink, and if you're Methodist, you dance, and if you're Presbyterian, you have this. And it was very, 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 I guess we could say, uh, inclusive. But now the gates are open. So what we're going to be able to do week after week after week is learn how to give an answer, how to give a defense of Christianity, not just for people, Hindu, Buddhists, but how do you make inroads with the gospel? How do you defend against someone who's, let's say, Franklin County, they're unchurched, they're de-churched, and they're like, why? I mean, I just, I don't, I don't go to church, I don't care about Christ, why do you go? So we're going to learn the whole, the whole, the whole gamut. Alright? So, what is apologetics? <clears throat> it is, simply put, equipping people with the knowledge to defend their faith. Alright? A lot of times in church we can say, you guys need to witness. But some people say, well, I've never been taught how do you defend against this objection, against this objection. We're going to go through all of that. 
So what is apologetics? Uh, if you want to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we'll look at this verse in context. This is the key verse in the New Testament where we get our concept of apologetics from. <clears throat> the Bible says there in verse 15, But in your hearts, and this is from the ESV, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, or with meekness and fear. Now let's back up to verse 13 so we take this in context. This is the Apostle Peter, and he writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then it gets to our verse. Here's the context. Peter is writing to to a group of Jewish Christians who's under persecution. And he's telling them that even when people try to persecute you for holding to Christ, you still must be ready to provide an answer. Now let's stop right here. What we're going to prepare is how to give reasons to people why it's reasonable to believe in Jesus Christ. But imagine if these people were not just in a conversation combative with us. Let's imagine if they were actually persecuting us physically. If you've ever been in a fight or you think one's about to break out, you know that cold chill that breaks out over you, right? It just seems like you're you're just ready to rumble, right, Brother Ronnie? Let's get it on, all right? So, uh, but for some of us, you have that fear, right? Like, oh my goodness, there's about to be physical contact. I may be hurt. This person may take me to the ground. And imagine being a first century Christian to where you have that threat of being physically persecuted. And the apostle Peter says, guys, even in that context, not just a conversation, But even in that context, be ready to give a defense. So we're going to look at several of the Greek words here that are very key, that will provide the foundation. Um, It says, but in your hearts, honor or sanctify Christ. The root word here, uh, hagiasate, which would be the the Greek word here, the root would be to consecrate. Hagios means uh, holy. And so when something, something is consecrated, it is set apart for specific use. Like growing up, we had, my mom had this special red plate, and it says, you are a special person, um, and she would cook our birthday dinner on that plate. And when it was your birthday, that's the only time that we used it out of the year. That was just a special plate for special occasions. In other words, me and my brother didn't use that plate uh, as a shield when we played soldiers, all right? It wasn't for that purpose. So when the Bible here says to to honor uh, Christ. Uh, the Lord as holy, it literally means, Lord, I am setting myself apart for you in my heart, and not only that, I'm going to discipline myself to be able to stand up for you. Secondly, it says, um, be prepared, always being prepared. In other words, it means ready to be used for a purpose. I was reading one of these preacher illustration books, with which most of the time you don't get anything good out of those at all, because all the illustrations and the jokes are cheesy. But there was this one story. It says a hunter came across a boar in the woods, and it's still one of those old school stories where the animals talk to people and nothing is weird. You guys ever read that? Okay. 
But he, he said, what are you doing? And, and the boar was sharpening his tusk against the tree. And he said um, something to the effect of, when the day of battle comes, I have other things, I will have other things to do other than sharpen my tusk, right? If the day of battle comes and I say, all right, give me five, I'm going to run down to the gun store and make a quick purchase and grab some ammo and I've never fired a gun before, may not be the best recipe, right? You're about to get into the cage with some guy who looks like Cro-Magnon man. It's not the right time to say to somebody, have a karate book. Y'all with me on that? That's basic Basic stuff that we all have. So the point is to be prepared. So the question for us is how do we prepare ourselves? That's what we're going to do. Tonight is intro. Every night we're going to prepare. It's some awesome stuff. And I'll just take this moment. Um, I always love doing this, especially from the pulpit. Y'all just see the people on Sunday morning hold up big books like this and say you need to get this. It's kind of like avoid eye contact slowly. But, uh, but if you're looking to kind of dig your teeth into something that has meat, uh, it's Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive faith for biblical faith. Uh, Douglas, it's, it looks like Gruthius, but it, it pronounced it Grutis. It's actually very easy to read. It has everything um, organized into chapters. You don't have to read it from front to back. You can go to whatever you need. It's awesome. You can get it for maybe 15, 20 bucks off of Amazon. I would highly, highly, highly recommend this book. It is awesome. Not only can you use it to prepare yourself for apologetics, you can use it as a weapon. You see how, see how big it is. I mean, you could definitely take somebody down with, with this bad boy. So, being prepared. So, being prepared to do what? To make a defense. Now, here's, here's the Greek word for defense. Uh, apologion, or apologia, apology. I don't know if you guys have ever mentioned apologetics in a conversation with someone who doesn't know what it is, and they're kind of like, you're, so Jeff, you're studying apologetics at liberty. What are you apologizing for, right? It's, but, but what it means, it means to give a speech or a reason defense. They would use this in the Greek world for a lawyer who got up to give a defense or a clear, concise explanation of a particular position. So when we say apologetics, what it means is that we're going to give reasons and facts and evidence to defend Christianity and also to explain Christianity. I think it's so cool. So when we say apologetics, we're not apologizing, but rather we're explaining. And I don't know if y'all have ever had that apologetics conversation for like, well, what what'd you do wrong, you know? Okay, now here here's where it can get very, very, very difficult for us who are passionate for the Lord. It says, be prepared always to make a defense to whom? Anyone, and here's the awkward part, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So in other words, be prepared if anyone from any persuasion comes to you and asks you, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Now, have you all ever known of or have you ever experienced, you don't have to share the story if you don't want to, someone who has given truth, but given truth in a spirit that is absent of love. Like, here's the truth, and you will receive this truth, whether I have to hold you on the ground and get you in a stranglehold and literally shove it down your throat, and you're going to like it. Right? Like, like that. Now notice what the Bible says. Here is the spirit in which we do that. It says, yet do it with gentleness or meekness. The Greek word here says 
about gentleness or meekness, it is the quality, this is, this is amazing, straight out of the Greek lexicon, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Wow, that's a good word. Why is that important if we're trying to explain Christ to an unbeliever? That you're making downtown defensive if you become offensively. Okay. Alright. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you come off as being bossy, no possessing, they shut you off instantly. They're off over here somewhere else, mentally. Right. They're not receiving what you're telling them. So we can do something by my attitude, my demeanor, that will shut people down from even hearing the gospel. Well, when you like, when you jump on it and you kind of like freak out a little bit and you're just gonna, you know, just shove it down their throats. It kind of like, like when people do that to me, it gives me a sense that they're scared of something. Mm. And but if you can do it in a gentle and calm manner, mm-hmm. then you're confident in what you're saying, rather than feeling like you have to force it down. Okay, good, good. There's a statement from William Lane Craig. You basically hit the nail on the head. We'll look at it in a minute, brother Ron. The only thing that I would add is much like what he was just saying. One of the things that we're going to have to be what we say. How we present ourselves. We're trying to witness to people. And they come back and say, Well, how can you teach or tell me about God when we just had this incident in Connecticut? Mm. Like if God is good and God, how come He allowed that? Right. Then you've got to be gentle enough and Mm. calm enough to explain to them that He didn't. Well, you know, in one sense, we know that God is sovereign overall, but we know that God doesn't tell us, thou shalt not murder, and then God, in a sense, is violating uh, his own law. So that's, but I, that we're actually going to come to a six week series. I don't know if I, we're going to talk a lot about that on Sunday. In the next couple of months, we're going to go through six weeks of the problem of evil. We're going to look at why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And both of those are loaded. We know those are not the right questions to ask at all. And the question really, according to Jesus, is why is anybody alive at all? But we're going to look at that. And in fact, we're going to, that's going to be part of this as well. So in fact, but you hit on that, that is the number one, more than Darwinian evolution and so-called science, scientism, the problem of evil and suffering. Why did my dad die when I was a child? Why was I abused? Why was fill in whatever it may be, suffering? That is the number one objection to Christianity, not only Christianity, but theism in general, belief in any God. So we're going to hit that on Sunday mornings for six weeks. And I will also come in here because I really want us to know uh, mostly what not to say. Because sometimes if, and we pray something like that never happened. But if the Newtown shooting were to happen near us, uh, that's often the hardest thing is knowing what not to say. Right? Because we all feel the, the pressure to say something to solve but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we, when we get to that. But you're exactly right, Brother Ronnie, that we have to use 
gentleness. And, and, and think about this if you come in contact, maybe it's your friend, uh, co-worker, family member, and they are just stubborn, right? And I know that we've all talked to unbelievers and they're just stubborn. It seems like they don't, they, not that they, they can't believe yet, but they just don't want to believe and they want to show that you're dumb for believing, right? It's like they have a vendetta to show that you're intellectually lacking. Take a step back and say, Lord, how patient, how gentle were you with me leading me to that place of repentance? Because it says, I think it's in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If God were not kind, there would be no way for us to even find him when he, when he draws us to him. So not only gentleness, but with respect. Now this word here is phobo. We get our English word phobia. Isn't this kind of cool? We don't go into the Greek all the time, but when there's some really key words, I think it helps. It literally means the word translated in the ESV, respect. If you've got the KJV, does anybody have the King James here tonight? Is it fear in there? Meanness and fear? Okay, all right. Um, Literally, the word means fear, phobo, or a phobia. But in, in the context, I looked this up in the Greek lexicon, the way that it's used in this sense is respect that is due officials. It's kind of like if you were talking before a king, you would give them respect. You would guard your words carefully. Now, this is interesting. This is a Bible insight here. This is not in the context of giving an answer to kings, is it, specifically? It's giving an answer to whom? Anyone. Anyone. So let's stop. The Greek word phobo in this sense has to do with giving respect and honor to a dignitary, but the Bible says you do it to anyone. You know what we have just been told right here? That whenever God, through his sovereignty, opens the opportunity for you and I to speak to anyone on any level for any amount of time about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we are face to face with someone who has been made in the image of God, who has a conscience, who will live in heaven or hell for all eternity. So for us to not only guard the way that we present and what we present, not that we're, um, I guess we could say, having an irrational phobia, but know that this is a person, even if this person is arrogant, and isn't it hard sometimes to present the love of Jesus when the other person is not loving? It's like, I just, I want to I want to pray for you and I want to smack you, right? Like all at the same time. Yeah, let's bow our heads, smack, you know, it's just, you know, but, but I think it's very, very telling that we're supposed to, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give respect to the person. Because often, what you and I have found in all of our short lives combined so far, is that when often we follow Proverbs fifteen thirteen, a soft answer turns away wrath, we find that if we're gentle with someone, not, not all the time, sometimes people it's just... It, God has put us in that situation to learn how to be humble, and that's as far as we know, that's it for that day. But it's for us to say, Lord, I'm going to subject myself and treat them with your kindness, and often what you find is that disarms people, even if they're an angry atheist. And we'll, I'll tell you more about that. I don't know if we'll get have time tonight, but um, my experience teaching in secular college before I moved to Rocky Mount. And so many of the atheist students, their issues, and it's not, it doesn't fit intellectually, it's, it's, it's a fallacy, but Christians are jerks. 
And not all of them had said that just to use it as an excuse, but they had had that happen, which turned them off. If Jesus is love and his followers are jerks, then therefore, this is not true, but therefore Jesus must not be love. So, Here is kind of what you're hinting at, Whitney. William Lane Craig, I would encourage you guys to get on his website, reasonablefaith.org. We'll use a lot of his material. But he says, quote, Whereas easy appeals to mystery prematurely shut off reflection about God, rigorous and earnest effort to understand him is richly rewarded with deeper appreciation of who he is, more confidence in his reality and care, and a more intelligent and profound worship of his person. Now, this first statement, whereas easy appeals to mystery prematurely shut off reflection about God. You know what he's speaking of here in the context of apologetics? Is when people ask us, well, why are you a Christian? You say, well, I just believe. Well, why do you believe? I just do. Jesus loves me. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Are you born again, brother? And they're like, well, no offense, but I, I mean, I've heard arguments that, that, that theism doesn't have any, any grounds or that the resurrection of Jesus is just a made up story or the Bible was changed. What, what do you think about that? I just love Jesus. He's great. Our God, you see what I'm saying? It shuts it down to where what they think is all that we have as a crutch to help us through our life. Now, we know that Jesus is a help, right? He sends His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to guide us, to assist us. But we believe, um, not purely based upon scientific or historical evidence, ultimately we believe because of the Holy Spirit. But if we don't have anything to show them, it may shut them off from searching God. Now, right here, if you're taking notes, I would mention that knowing Christianity is true and showing Christianity is true, is that's not always the same thing. Okay? We know Christianity is true ultimately because of the Holy Spirit. Because He has shown us deep within our hearts, connected us with God. I, it is real. I am saved. I know that. You can kill me, but I know that. But sometimes knowing exactly how to explain that To demonstrate that can be difficult. So let no one ever tell you that because you can't explain Christianity, then therefore you're not truly saved. We all on the same page with that? Because some people can get get confused there and say, well, oh no, if I can't articulate the ontological argument or, you know, Aquinas' five arguments for the existence of God, then Jesus doesn't love me. It's not that at all. But what we're going to try to do is learn how to do that stuff. All right? So why is apologetics needed? We've already looked at the lostness in North America and the world. Um, and also to understand where other people are coming from. It would be like asking a Hindu, are you willing to trust in Jesus Christ? Why might that be problematic? Yeah, yeah. A, a Hindu's belief system, um, contrary to like, let's say a person, and I think that the Bible Belt exists for for. Not from, I, I, and I maybe disagree with some people, I don't believe the Bible Belt exists for my generation in the South anymore, just because of conversations. I think it exists for the generation up from me and further on. But let's say you take a person um, maybe in their 50s, and they've been raised in the Deep South, they may not be saved, they've heard the gospel, they've been to revivals, and you say, are you willing to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? They probably have somewhat, not all the time, but somewhat of an idea. But like Trish was saying, Hinduism has a 
one of read in some books, over 330 million gods. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, imagine your prayer time. You know, you know, we, we've got the Lord to pray to, and sometimes it's just like, so here's the thing, if we ask them that, most of the time we'll say, well, yes, I'll trust in Jesus, I'll believe in Jesus, but their concepts behind that, it's going to be a train wreck, and then we come back and say, you know what, my friend from India got saved. No, they just added Jesus to their pantheon of gods. So, um, and also the inevitability of encountering unbelievers, it's going to happen, and... Um, well, we're going to start, this is going to, I don't know if you guys know yet, but 2013 will be the year of outreach. That's what I believe the Lord is leading us to do as a church, to reach out in Franklin County. Um, we're going to have the last Wednesday of this month, and we're going to see how the Lord provides and if we'll do that more often. Um, but right now, the last Wednesday night of every month specifically will be set aside for us meeting at the time we normally would for Bible study. And going out, we'll have organized charts and map quests and names and everyone from our homebound widows to people who are prospects for the church, people who are not saved. And we're going to go out and take one night out of the month and share the gospel. Because it's to the point now that I've been able to in the past do a lot of that myself. Uh, bring whoever wanted to go with me, but there are so many people that the Lord has brought to us now that I, I'm very behind, and I think that we've got a lot of people who are willing to do that. So what we're going to do is not only in our interactions just daily interact with lost people, we're going to go out and try to find lost people on a regular systematic uh, scale here from the church. <clears throat> so here's the questions you say, Jeff, who are we actually going to speak Well, there's basically three groups that we could categorize people into. Number one would be a skeptic that says no one has the right answer. And by the way, it may not be best if you start off with a skeptic this way, but that's a very lazy intellectual approach. If you meet uh, a self-confessed brilliant skeptic, say that's very, very easy because all you're sitting back is doing, and all you're doing is saying you don't have the right answer, 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 and you're either incapable or unwilling to try to do any truth discovery of your own. But once again, that may not be the best thing to say if you're just starting off, right? Boom. Awesome. Undercutting defeater. Did you guys see what she did? Whenever somebody, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at all these rhetorical tools, and it's going to be basically, if you've watched Ultimate Fighting, Randy Couture's Dirty Boxing, we're going to learn how to do dirty boxing apologetics, all right? All these things that people try to do that throw things out, like if you believe in God, then what about age? You can turn that stuff around, it'll totally shift the conversation, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, lay the smack down, all right? Mm. See, we're already getting into apologetics in the first night. I like this. Okay, good. Go, go with that. Go with that. What is he using to gauge whether you have the right answer or not? You have to, you have to know what's right to be able to gauge what is right. Okay. All right. And the skeptic would maybe respond with something like, well, because it doesn't make sense. What can we say then? Because it's not reasonable. Isn't that the same thing like when they, like I've had people tell me before, there's no truth. Like, okay, you, you believe that there's no truth? And they're like, right. yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, that's one. I was like, so you believe that there's one truth, that there is no truth. Well, yeah, okay, that's two. And then you just keep <laughs> Good. Bingo. Bingo. I love, see
One of the greatest tools I think that we'll learn in this course, just what you're talking about, is when people make statements, often we get pushed back in the corner like a rookie boxer, you know, the first debut. I don't know why all the illustrations are fighting tonight. I have no idea. But uh, but but what we need to do often is is to, to return that and ask them to assess their own view, just like leasing. How, how do you how do you know what's rational? What are you using to get to that decision that you say Christianity is irrational? Well, because you believe that a dead man rose from the dead. Well, why is that irrational? Well, because it's impossible. What's your frame of reference? Well, what we see. Well, are, are you saying that what we see is all that has ever been seen? Or aren't, aren't you kind of precluding everything before examining all the evidence? Well, it's impossible. Well, why is it impossible? Because we don't see dead people rise today. Well, what if all the evidence points that there was an anomaly in history and the evidence points to a dead man actually? Why don't you actually go investigate that? And you can also ask people say, well, what makes something reasonable? Well, if it makes sense, you say, well, where does reason come from? And most people who use those arguments are naturalists. They don't believe that God exists. There is no spirit, no heaven, no hell, no angels, no demons. So everything is physical. Well, if we assess physical, the physical world, if we can study science, we have to use something that's not physical. Reason. Well, if reason is not physical, right? We're all the same there. Reason, rationale, logic. If that's not a physical thing that has to be transcendent, separate from the physical world. Well, if it's separate from the physical world, then the physical world is not all that there is. And atheism says that materialism, naturalism, the only thing that exists is stuff. If there is anything other than stuff, it has to come from somewhere. You say, okay, well, I'll give you that. If logic and reason is not physical, then it's real. Oh, yeah, reason is real. Logic is real. You say, well, where does it come from? If God doesn't exist, then logic and reason comes from chaos and randomness, right? Big bang, random. And say, why should we think something is logical, orderly, reasonable, rational that comes from total randomness? The other option is that reason comes from a rational designer that we know is God, right? So you can you can definitely use that and... And we're going to run out of time. So uh, this is good, good, good stuff. Okay, so the skeptic. Uh, number two, the cynic. Everyone thinks they're correct. Um, they'll say this. And religion is just a scam. Ever heard those objections? Just, I mean, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Christians, they all think they're right. Well, not the Buddhist and the Hindu. They say the truth is relative to, you know, whoever. But since there's so many beliefs out there, it's not even worth, you know, Worthy of my time to go try to see if there is something. So it's just a, just a scam. All right. Number three would be the critic who would say that Christianity has been corrupted. The Bible has been changed, so forth and so on. Um, and then who was apologetics for? Two groups and only two groups of people. The only two groups of people there are. First, unbelievers. Uh, it can be used for correcting uh, false thinking patterns. The Lord can use you to say, just some of our our discussions tonight, um, and there's a great book called Tactics, and we'll hopefully get to it in the months that come. But try try to get this in your mind just as we start out tonight. Whenever you talk to someone that is not a believer, try to go at it from this aspect. 
Say, Lord, help me. I want them to be saved, but if I can just place a rock in their shoe, okay? If I can just place a rock in the shoe of the, their thinking pattern right now, I've, it's a success, all right? And we'll, because what, what, what normally happens when you cause people to realize that their thinking pattern is flawed and they think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God has designed us to be rational creatures to use our minds. And if we know that our thinking patterns are false, we cannot continue to go down that. We're going to have to find why it's contradictory and so forth and so on. So also, what apologetics does is it opens the door for the gospel. Let's say that you have a person um, who says that the Bible has been corrupted. All right? If you can show them some good evidence for believing that the Bible is accurate, I believe that it's infallible, the word of God, inerrant, all of it, all right? If you can show them that, then if they say, okay, I see that as a historical document, it's trustworthy, then they'll actually be willing to listen to the claims of it, right? But not before. So the Lord can use you to take down those false defenses. So for believers, it strengthens our faith, right? We get saved Ultimately, it was that day we heard the gospel, church, home, kid, teenager, adult, say, I need to be saved. I'm going to hell. I need Jesus Christ. He's Savior. He is Lord. Boom. But what it does is it strengthens our faith to show that what we experienced was not just um, like like the, uh, the Mormons who say it's the burning in the bosom. You guys heard that? Mormons say that you know that you're one of the group because of the burning in your bosom. It's simply an experience, but it's not rooted in any actual fact uh, as opposed to, to our faith. But it also strengthens our confidence in sharing our faith, right? And some of us can be maybe intimidated by somebody who has a bunch of degrees or who seems to be very smart and know big words and ask us questions that we don't know. Slowly but surely, we will add to our quiver full of gospel arrows to be able to pull out not only attacks against uh, anti-Christian stuff, but be able to raise our shield as well. Um, What exactly do we defend? We'll defend historic Orthodox Christianity. Often people will try to sucker you into an argument that it doesn't matter either way. Um, Sometimes people will try to sucker you into the argument about baptism. Um, I believe baptism is by immersion, but ultimately that doesn't have anything to do with whether Jesus rose from the dead. Right? So, so we'll be very careful. Uh, if you guys have ever heard that old fallacy called the red herring fallacy? Anybody remember what that is? Right. When you Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're like a smoke screen. You you drag you got the hound dogs after you and you drag that big smelly red herring across the path and you throw it into the lake and it totally distracts the dogs from their goal. So we'll be very careful and some of the things that unbelievers try to do as well. But here's a couple of approaches, all right? Um, three to be exact. Apologetic approaches. Number one would be positive apologetics. Billy Graham, Billy Graham gives the gospel, right? Like, here's a positive case for Jesus. Another way that you could do it would be negative apologetics, or what's called polemics, which is an attack. It attacks the lies and other belief systems. Now, right here, let's stop for just a moment and uh, talk about personality types. There are probably some of us in here that don't mind arguing. In fact, there may be some of us in here who like a good 
argument. All right? We've got family members in here. Nobody's pointing yet, so that's, that, that may be a good thing. Okay? And then, then, there's, then there's some of us in here, and we're just more, more laid back, more, I guess, just say, okay, well, that's fine. We're, we're not talking about being bulldogs necessarily. Okay? What we're talking about is we're not attacking people. Okay? When we say negative arguments or negative apologetics, we're talking about attacking the arguments. And I think it's very helpful to people today to say, to preface things like, now, I'm not, I'm not saying this against you. I'm not saying you're a piece of trash. What I'm saying is this, this argument, what you believe, you know, that the Bible is corrupted, so forth. Let, let me talk about that and be very clear, because a lot of people today have not been taught how you actually talk about things. And when they give their opinion and you disagree, y'all tell me, what do most people think you reject, their opinion or them? They take it so personal. So try to preface that just to make sure, because a lot of this stuff, it is just it's straight hitting. So number three, cultural or conversational apologetics. It would be taking anything at hand to use as an opening. Um, is an opening. Miss Patty, you have the grooviest ringtones. I, I just, yeah, bring the funk, all right? But, um, but it would be taking anything at hand to use for the gospel. And that's when we start going out and doing uh, visitation and evangelism. That's what we're going to try to do. And um, let's look, five minutes left, let's look at several of these. We're not going to be able to get through all of them, really. But the seven major objections to Christianity, number one would be what Eric Cantor calls the talk show question. All right? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. How many of you have ever heard something to the effect of that? Let me see, see your hands. Alright. Just, you believe that? That is, Jerry, that is so good. I'm glad for you. Awesome. I don't believe that, but if you believe that, that's fine. That type of deal, the Oprah um, objection. Number two would be all religions are basically the same. You see, I'm a Christian. Oh, they're all basically the same, which, by the way, um, and, and you've got to be really careful how you unpack this, but, and we're not being arrogant, but people who say that have not studied religions very detailed. We're not talking about having a PhD in it, but boy, when you, when you just put the Quran and the Bible side, side by side, it is, it, it's, it's not even close. Or, or Buddhism and Christianity, Buddhism, there's not even a God. You don't even need a God. It's basically an atheistic philosophy. And you, know, you can go to Shinto, the religion of Japan, and there's a there's basically a, a spirit God behind every bush. And then you come to the Bible, and there is one true God who is created. It's just people who say that, it's just like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long day, right? But we will hear that. Brother Ronnie brought out the argument from evil. Huge, massive, massive objection. Number four, what about those who have never heard of Jesus? Great question. All right? Great question. And in a nutshell, what, what happens to the innocent man in the middle of Africa who lives and dies never hearing the name of Jesus? Where does he go? Goes to heaven. Or does he? What's wrong with what I said? But, but what type of man? This is going to test y'all. It's, it's like three minutes. You're like, oh, let us go, Jeff. All right? No, okay. The, the innocent... What's that? Yeah. The, the innocent man living in the middle of Africa. Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. So, Romans chapter 2. 
Verses 14 through 16, the law is written on their hearts. So that means that every single person who has ever lived and ever died has had the witness of God within their heart. And they will be held responsible for that degree of knowledge that they have. But every single person has sinned and violated the law of God written on their conscience. Even though they may know it's wrong to steal, to commit adultery, um, to murder, a person who may not have done all those has done some. So just just clear that up and say your concept of the innocent guy in the middle of wherever that may be is not exactly accurate. Once again, ask the Lord to help you be seasoned with grace when you say that. Because it's, it's difficult sometimes when you know the right answer to help people, but you don't want to smack them down. You want to smack the answer down and then help them. Um, doesn't the Bible have contradictions? Number six, isn't religion just a crutch? Short but good answer. Romans chapter 14, it says to put on G- the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way Ray Comfort said this. He says that religion or Christianity, more specifically, is not a crutch, but rather um, it is a parachute, right? Because there will be a day um, in which we will have to face God. Number seven, isn't it arrogant to say Christianity is the only way? 